Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. All right, let's get to it. James chapter 4. We're going to finish up James chapter 4 this morning. We're looking at verses 13 through 17. I'd love for you to have your copy of God's Word in your lap open. We'll have it on the screen. But, but there's just something about having your own copy of God's Word in front of you. So please, please find James chapter 4, verse 13 through 17. And as you're doing that, let me uh, selfishly ask you to pray for me this week. I am going to South Africa tomorrow to Johannesburg, where I'm going to be speaking at a, a church conference there in Johannesburg at Brackenhurst Baptist Church, which is pastored by Doug Van Meter. And Doug came and preached here at Crosspoint several years ago, and he's become a friend. He's pastored this church there in Johannesburg for about 30 years. And this church in Johannesburg is actually the home church of our dear friends Gareth and Carrie Franks who were missionaries in India and are now, Gareth is pastoring a church in Abu Dhabi in the United Arab Emirates. And so this is their home church and we got connected with Brackenhurst through them. And the pastor there, Doug Van Meter, has become a dear friend and has invited me to come speak at a church conference there. And so I'm really looking forward to that, but pray for me that I would be a blessing to those saints. I'm speaking four times, Thursday, night, Friday night, Saturday night, and then Sunday morning I'll be preaching there. And pray for me as I travel. Um, the older I get, if I could just confess with you, the, the, um, I don't fly well. I used to just get on planes and go, um, but I'm, I don't fly well over the ocean. Uh, and don't laugh, I'm serious. Um, it, it, there, there are sharks in the ocean. <laughs> and you know that that, shark, that sharks are one of my, my phobias, and you guys are laughing, but I'm actually really asking you for prayer. <clears throat> um, so please do, please do pray for me as I travel, and pray for Brackenhurst and for their ministry there. They're in a very strategic place, and I pray that, that my time there would be a blessing to the saints and, and encourage them and help that church grow in grace. Um, well, I'm going to read the text and then we're going to think about what this text is saying. This message has two parts. Part number one is explanation. Part number two is application. We're just going to look to explain the text and then apply the text. This text is speaking about presuming upon the future, thinking that we can control the future. And it's really folly, isn't it? I mean, I, I think about all the ways that we think that we know what's going to happen. Whether it's the outcome of a presidential election or the future of financial markets. In fact, this past week I was in California going to a pastor's conference and visiting my parents. And yesterday I was, I was in San Diego fly, getting ready to fly back home. And I was checking my phone to, to check the scores of, of basketball games. And there's this new little thing on, on the ESPN.com where it gives you the percentage of, of the likelihood that a team is going to win as the game is going on. And so I'm following the USC-UCLA basketball game, looking at play-by-play. -play. I'm not watching it. I'm just 
watching, you know, the, the highlights, the, the, the statements about, you know, this team scored two points, that team scored. But I'm actually focusing on the upper right-hand corner where, where with every possession, there's a percentage that goes up. But now USC has a 54% chance of winning. And I'm actually, I mean, that, what in the world? It's a basketball game. I mean, and I'm looking at the percentage of, of who's going to win. We maybe more than any other generation, because of technology, because of pride, we think we know what's going to happen, but we don't. And this text will help reorient our lives away from ourselves to the Lord. So let me read James 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Well, let's pray. Lord, help us understand this text. Lord, we confess that we are self-centered creatures. Metaphorically, we stare at our own belly buttons and we think we know the future. We don't even know what's going to happen in the next hour. Humble us, Lord. Cause us to look up from ourselves and see you and your gracious goodness to your people. Lord, as we, as we work through this text, help us understand it and apply it to our lives. What a shame it would be if we just played church this morning just to get through a few songs and a sermon so that we can check this Sunday off on our list of things that we have done. What a shame that would be. Meet us here in your word. Show us beautiful things. Help us to understand the gospel and your grace better as a result of this text. And, and after this message, as we see two brothers in this church be baptized, let us revel in the grace of the gospel that saves sinners like us. Lord, you have watered my soul with this passage this week. Use me to be part of your means to water the souls of these precious people. And may the end result be fruit, spiritual fruit, Christ-likeness for believers and salvation for any that are not trusting in your Son. And we pray it all for your glory and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. Part one, explanation. I think this passage is really actually quite straightforward. In fact, that's one of the things I've loved about going through James is I think actually James is relatively easy to understand. There are few, very few, theologically difficult texts to understand. Now, it's not necessarily easy to apply, but I think it's easier to understand than other books of the Bible. And this passage is no exception. I think that the point of this passage is simply telling us that it is folly to go through life acting like we know what the future holds, but rather we should live life, we should go through life with a humble posture knowing that God is in control 
and that all things bow to him and that we should bow to him and we should plan our future in light of God's utter sovereignty. I think that's the point of this passage. So let's, let's look, let's just kind of walk through it and then we're gonna apply this passage to our lives. Verses 13 and 14, James says, come now you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring for what is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Now, let's think here about these two verses, about what, before we can really think about what James is saying, let's think about what he's not saying. He is not saying clearly that we shouldn't plan for the future. That's not James's point. In fact, we could make a case biblically that it's lazy and in fact maybe even sinful to not plan. There's this proverb, uh, I think it's Proverbs 30, where the, the writer of the proverb is saying, look at the ants, and he actually refers to the ants as a people, sort of metaphorically. He says, look at the ants. They are a wise people. They store up for themselves in the summer. And so what he's getting at is that ants are planning for an unknown future. They're planning for the, for the winter. Paul says to a young pastor, Timothy, he says that a, that a man that does not provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever, worse than an infidel. So he's not saying that we shouldn't think about how we should make money. It's okay to plan. In fact, it's righteous and wise to plan. But what James is saying is it's not okay to presume that our plans are necessarily going to come to pass. It's not planning for the future that is bad. It's presuming control of the future that is sinful. So he's not saying that we shouldn't plan for the future. And he's also not saying that making money or being involved in business is sinful. Certainly it can be if it's an idol, if it becomes something that we, we idolize and worship in a sense, but that's not what James is saying. He's not saying that making money is necessarily bad. In fact, there are other parts of the Bible that actually commend it and commend the generosity of people who make a lot of money. Listen to what Paul says to this young pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. He says in verse 17, as for the rich in this present age, Charge them not to be haughty. In other words, not to trust in their riches. He doesn't tell them not to be rich, but charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So clearly riches and business and commerce and making money is not in and of itself necessarily sinful. In fact, at times, it can be very, very blessed by God and be used by God for kingdom purposes. And certainly we see that. This church, in fact, has benefited from the generosity of many people, some who have lots of money, some who have very little money. But the point is, whether you're rich or poor, it's, it's a fine thing, a noble thing to think about the future, to plan for the future, to make money so that you can take care of your family and bless other people. That's a good thing. So that's, James is not saying that we shouldn't care about money or make money or shouldn't plan for the future. What is James saying? I think clearly he's saying it's not, it's not the action, it's the attitude. 
That's what he's saying. It's not the, it's not the planning, it's the posture that James is getting at here. Don't go through life acting like you are guaranteed tomorrow, presuming that God is there to sprinkle his blessing on your well-laid plans. That's the clear point that James is making. And he gives us, very briefly, two reasons why presuming the future is absolute folly. And we see it there in verse 14. There's two reasons why we shouldn't presume on the future. Reason number one is that we have no idea what the future holds. Look at the first part of 14. He says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. We think we know what Monday, March 9th is going to bring. I think I'm going to get on a plane in Atlanta in the evening. I think I'm going to take Delta's longest flight. No, that's what they told me when I booked it. Delta's longest flight from Atlanta to Johannesburg over a very, very large ocean, and I, I, think, <laughs> whew, I think I'm going to land in Johannesburg. I think I'm going to be greeted there by some saints at Brackenhurst Baptist, Baptist Church. I think I'm going to speak. In fact, actually, Friday, Doug told me, he said, Brad, he just emailed me this yesterday. He said, Brad, I've got a pastor friend who wants to come pick you up Friday morning, and he has a radio show, and he wants to interview you on this radio show, and then he wants you to take a couple hours of call-in questions from people around you. Are you up for this? Yeah, I'm up for this. Okay. Bible time with Pastor Brad from America. I have no idea what that's going to look like. I think, I think it's going to go well. I hope it will go well. I hope there's no questions that make me look like a complete fool on the South African airwaves. And then the following Monday, I think I'm going to come back here and again take Delta's longest flight from Johannesburg to Atlanta over a very large ocean with many, many sharks. And I think I'm going to land safely in Atlanta. But friends, let's be honest, we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We have no idea. We have no idea, so it is folly for us to presume that what we think is going to happen a month from now or the business that we plan a year from now is going to happen because we are mere mortals. We are not in control of the future. That's the first reason. And then the second reason he gives us, he says in verse 14, is not only that you don't know what tomorrow will bring, but then he says, secondly, what's your life? For you are a mist. You're a vapor. You're like the morning fog that burns off before the noon sun. It appears for a little time and then it's gone. So not only do you not know the future, but even if you could know the future, your future is so incredibly short. What are you compared to God's eternal plan and infinite measure of days? I mean, we, we last for such a short time. Uh, I, I had a conversation with my parents this week. I was staying with them, and, and I laugh about this. Um, I, I, um, I am a direct descendant, a direct descendant of John Jay, who is a founding father of the United States of America. He was the first Supreme Court Justice of the United States. He's a very famous American. 
I, knew, I found this out when I was about 40 years old. Back in the 1770s, John Jay, a contemporary of Benjamin Franklin and George Washington, was a very important man, one of the most important men in the world, first Supreme Court Justice of the United States. And if you'd have told John Jay, several generations from now, there's going to be a young woman who's going to be your direct descendant, and she's going to have a child, and she's going to know that she was descended from you, but she's going to think so much about you and your importance that she won't think to mention it to her son until he's 40 years old. <laughs> Mom. Your life's a mist. There was a man named Mike Hubbard, and he was born in Gainesville, Georgia, in the early 1900s. Gainesville, Georgia. We're right now in Georgia. As a young man, Mike Hubbard migrated west and became a very wealthy farmer. Mike Hubbard was the father of a woman named Linda Hubbard, who is the mother of a man named Brad Evangelista. Mike Hubbard died when Brad Evangelista, that's me by the way if you didn't know it, Mike Hubbard died when Brad was an infant. Brad never got to meet his grandfather, Mike. Later on in life, Brad moves to Georgia and has lived in Georgia now for 30 years. And just a few years ago, Brad's mother, Linda, just happened to mention, oh, by the way, did you know that your grandfather was from Georgia? What? You haven't told me? I've been living in Georgia for the past 30 years, and you're just now mentioning this to me? I'm a descendant of a Supreme Court justice founding father and a man from Georgia, and I just recently found these things out. Your life is a mist. And we act like what we're doing is so important. Jesus paints, paints a picture for us of this type of folly. Listen to what Jesus says in this parable in Luke chapter 12. This is, this is, this is so striking. Luke 12 verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made you a judge or arbiter over who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. This is Jesus speaking now. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared Whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. 
Friends, don't, don't read yourself out of that text. Don't think because you don't consider yourself financially wealthy that that text doesn't apply to you. Friends, the thing that you may be resting in may not be like this fool, some material possession, but all of us have the spirit of this fool in us where we are prone to presume upon our future Resting in whatever it may be, a promotion or this or that or some place or something that we finally achieve, don't presume that that will ultimately bring you satisfaction because Jesus says it can be here today and gone tomorrow. It is folly to go through life without a mind towards the sovereignty of God. And then here's what James says, skipping ahead a little bit to, to verse 16. He says, as it is, you boast in your arrogance all such boasting is evil. So the ultimate problem with planning for the future without considering and submitting to God's authority, it's not just that it's arrogant, but James here says it's evil. And why does he call it evil? Because ultimately, when we Think about the future without considering God, without submitting our plans to him, without humbly knowing that tomorrow is only what God can bring about. If we don't do that, ultimately, we are pushing God off of his throne. We're saying that I'm in charge. It's, it's, it's usurping God's authority. In, in, a, in a way, it's much like the verses we looked at last week when, when we looked at slander, where we're where James says this really incredible thing, he says when you slander somebody, you're actually putting yourself in the seat of judgment and you're actually judging God's law. So when we slander somebody else, we're actually kicking God out of his seat and we're saying that I'm the authority here. And in a similar way, when we think about the future without regards to God, we're doing the very same thing. We are pridefully, arrogantly, evilly putting ourselves in the place of God in our own lives. And James is saying, don't do that. It's not just arrogant, it's evil. So how should we think about the future? He says in verse 15, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So he's saying, you should, you should go about life, you should think about your future, you should speak about your future in the context of submitting your plans to God and his sovereign will. And he says, he says in verse 15, you should actually say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Now, I think there's two ways to do this. Uh, I think a wrong way, a mindless way to do it, and then an appropriate and a biblical way to do it. There, there can be a way of living out verse 15 that is a bit mindless and almost distracting. It can become kind of rote, and even potentially sinful, you know, the, the people that uh, I think maybe unintentionally become too spiritual, you know what I'm saying? Like, Lord willing, we'll end this service and Tyler will come and he'll read a benediction and Lord willing, when we get home, we'll eat lunch and Lord willing, we'll sing a song in just a moment and Lord willing, we'll have two baptisms and Lord willing, Lord willing, Brad will get to the end of this message soon or Lord, Lord willing, you know, it becomes almost kind of distracting. And in a way, if we, if we don't think about what we're saying, it can even become kind of deceitful. Well, Lord willing, Lord willing, I will, I'll come over and help you move your refrigerator tomorrow. Lord willing, Lord, Lord willing. It can be a kind of escape, right? Let your yes be yes and your no be no. 
So there's a wrong way to say it. But there's, there's an appropriate biblical way to do this, to live in the spirit of, of verse 15. More than mere words, and the words are good and fine, it's a posture and an attitude. Yes, I think we should more often say, if the Lord wills, or Lord willing. But, but more appropriately, we should live in this posture and not use it as a kind of super spiritual escape or excuse for not doing things that we clearly should do. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And he says there in verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance, all such boasting is evil. Again, we just covered this first. The real problem is not so much carelessness of presuming upon the future. The real problem is the arrogance, the evil, the, the God-usurping pride that is in our hearts when we think, when we plan the future without taking into consideration God. And then verse 17 Finally, before we look at how to apply this, he says this interesting thing, which is one of the more famous verses in James. And it's almost kind of like it, uh, it's tagged on at the end, and, and we have to think about how it applies. He says in verse 17, so, and that word so is a connector, meaning it's connected to everything that he said. It's a conjunction that's connecting it to what he said before. So, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him... It is sin. Now, what is this verse saying? It seems like a bit of an odd wrap-up to this, to this section. Again, I think there's two ways to look at verse 17. One way is to look at it as kind of a proverbial statement about the Christian life. That, you know, this is speaking, this is famously a verse that's speaking about sins of omission. Things that we, that we should do but we don't do. You know, and if you know what you should do and you don't do it, it's sin. It's a kind of proverb that applies to all of the Christian life. And clearly, clearly that's true. That is true. But I don't think we need this verse to believe that because I think the rest of the Bible is full of those types of imperatives that we should do right and we should, we should not just not do the things that we should do. We should do what is right. And to not do what is right is sin. But I think in context, this verse more directly is merely admonishing us to have the posture that James has been calling for in verses 13 through 16. He's, he's saying, don't live life. If you know that this is the way you should live, don't read these words from James. Don't come to church on March 18th, 2020. Don't, don't hear this letter read to you as a first century Christian. Don't, don't hear this truth from the Holy Spirit and let it roll off of you like water off of the back of a Labrador. It should sink into your life. It should sink into your heart. And you know what you should do. You know the posture you should live in. And if you fail to be changed by this admonition from the Holy Spirit, if you fail to do that and you don't live in this way, it's sin. So then the question for us is how do we, how do we apply this text? Two thoughts, and then we're going to see the gospel proclaimed in baptism. Just very simple. First application, I think, is, is trust God for the future. When we look at this text, it's not so much talking about just merely laying your business plans before the Lord, although that's certainly the case. But in a grander way, trust God for the future, we live in unsettling times. 
I mean, we, we, every day we read on the news about some new catastrophe or this new virus or who's going to be the president or what's life going to look like. Or it's, it's, a, it's an anxious age. And we, we, we're prone to worry and anxiety. And we're prone, because of worry and anxiety, to white-knuckle the steering wheel of our lives. And this text is for anxious people in a nervous age. And it's reminding us that we should and can, in fact, we must trust God for the future. We are free. The Bible crafts out for the Christian a freedom to live under the banner of God's good providence and will for us if you're a believer. Tyler read early for us from Isaiah chapter 46 where God says to the nation of Israel, I know the end from the beginning. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 11, uh, Paul writes, he says that, that God accomplishes all of his purpose, everything he brings to pass. And then listen to these famous verses in Romans chapter 8. I know these are, are familiar to you. Romans chapter 8 verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. This isn't a general promise for all humanity. It's for those who are in Christ, for those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So he's saying there's, a, there's a, an airtight seal in God's work in those whom he has made alive. He has foreknown you. He's foreloved you. He's predestined. He's predetermined that you will get to heaven. He's called you. He's made it actually happen in your life. He's justified you and he's glorified you. And as a response to that, look what he says in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So he's saying that whatever happens to you in your life, God is in utter and good and gracious control. And he goes on to say later on in that chapter, just a few verses later, he, this is no promise of earthly prosperity or comfort or long, long years. He's saying, he says in verse 36, he says, for your sake, he's quoting an Old Testament passage, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So to trust God for the future is not a guarantee of long earthly days or business success or children that grow up to know the Lord or or, or, or a church growing. It's just to know that God is good. And of course, this doesn't mean that we will not suffer. In fact, just let your eyes go up from Romans chapter 8 to verses 17 and 18. Listen to what, what he says about the Christian that he's promised to do good for. Romans 8, verse 17, and, or verse 16, and where, where am I? Yeah, verse 16 and 17. The Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, bears witness with our spirit, that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Listen to this. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So God knows the future. And he has guaranteed that his people will make it all the way home. They'll be glorified. He'll do good to them. And they will suffer. 
That's what he says. That's what he says is God's will for our lives. First Peter chapter 4, listen to this, along the same vein. Peter writes, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Do you see what the Bible is painting for us here about the Christian life? That God is in utter control, that God promises to do good to his children, and that good includes him even using suffering, maybe even untimely death and sickness and tragedy, for our good. If these things are true, what should it produce in us? It should produce in us a freedom. It should produce in us a a gladness. It should produce in us a joy. It should help us unclench our hands from this world. Listen to what the Heidelberg Catechism, this was written by Christians back in the 1500s out of the Protestant Reformation, one of the most beautiful catechisms and statements in the history of the church. In fact, this question, question number one of the Heidelberg Catechism, we have on a little uh, frame there right by the picture of the old Mountain Hill schoolhouse where we met as a church for the first five years from 2005 to 2010. And this is one of the most beautiful statements other than the Bible in all of church history. Question number one, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free From the tyranny of the devil, he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Man, that... That is a summary of biblical truth that is the foundation for why we can wake up tomorrow and not be scared in the corner, drooling in the fetal position, scared about the future. God's in control. And so whatever happens tomorrow, he has guaranteed, even if from an earthly perspective, it is a great tragedy, is for my good. Think about that. Friends, people in this room this year will face great tragedy. People in this room this past year have faced great tragedy. And what this passage, these verses, and this statement by these Christians back in the 1500s, and what James is calling us to hear is a kind of rock solid assurance that no matter what happens, there's not a leaf, there's not a blade, there's not a molecule, there's not an evil spirit in all of creation that can thwart God's good plan for our lives. And even the bad things that happen to us are used by a sovereign God to bring about more of Christ in us, and even if it snuffs out our earthly life and takes us home to him, it will be for our good. 
Christian life any other way is to live it with an earthly mindedness that will keep us in that anxious rut. Man, I don't, I don't do this real well. I, I don't, I, I confess that to you. I worry. And I thought, you know, for you younger parents out there, um, worrying about your kids when they're two and three and four, bumping their head on the edge of the table and pitching a fit in the restaurant, that ain't nothing compared to when they get older, man. <laughs> yeah, all you people that have young adult and adult children, can, can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> I'll take those diaper days, man. Vipers and diapers, man. They're easier to deal with. <laughs> not, 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 my kids are not in rebellion. I'm just saying. Um, it's, it's, I, just, I just want you to know this, friends. It's easy for me to preach this. It's harder for me to live it. And a lot of it is just pride. I, I, want, I, want, I want things to go well because I, I want to be well-spoken of. I want this church to grow. I want this church to be healthy. And I get anxious when I feel like sometimes it's not. Because there's something in me that is saying tomorrow and this year we're going to do such and such and such and go and grow and make a profit and my kids are going to be great and I'm living as if I can control the future and this text is chastening me. So trust God for the future. Second thing is is understand, understand that God's sovereignty doesn't just cause us to laissez-faire, laissez-faire. it ca- causes us to work hard in the present. So trusting God's good providence for me doesn't mean that I can just say, oh, well, que sera, sera, c'est la vie, you know, whatever happens, happens. I'm just going to go eat Cheetos and watch basketball and look at the percentage on the top of the screen to see, the, you know, who's going to win this game in the next five minutes. That's not the biblical response to resting in God's good and gracious sovereignty. When we understand it biblically, it calls us. When, we, when our hands, when the text, when the Holy Spirit lifts our hands from this death grip we have on the steering wheel of our lives and wrestles it. It doesn't wrestle our hands away so that we can relax and chill. It gives our hands freedom to actually work on the things that God has called us to give ourselves to. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 5. Verse 15, he says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So think about what you're doing. Walk carefully, not as unwise, but as wise. Don't be stupid is what he's saying in verse 17. Don't be foolish. Yes, God's in control, but now think, use the mind that he's given you. You're created in the image of God. You've been given the mind of Christ to bring glory to his name and wrestle and fight and strive and give yourself to figuring out and planning for the future, but put it all under the sovereign hand of God and let God do what he will do with your life as you spend yourself for him. what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 12 verses 1 through 2. I think he says, I appeal to you brothers. He's gone through he's gone through Romans chapter 1 and verse, Romans chapter 1 and through chapter 11 explaining the gospel. And he says in chapter 12 verses 1 and 2, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God in light of all that he's done, in light of his sovereign grace in your salvation, in light of his majestic plan to bring all things in counsel and in line with his sovereign, gracious will. In, in light of that, by the mercies of God, what does he say? Present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You will think about the future. You will try and discern what God's will is, and then you will give yourself to parenting, to running a business, to to being a mom, to being a dad, to being a pastor, to being a young person who doesn't just fall back into laziness and some misapplication of the sovereignty of God, but you knowing that God alone controls the future and your life is a mist. It doesn't cause you to give up on life, but it causes you and frees you to finally actually engage in life and give yourself to all that God has called you to do. And you're gonna make mistakes and tomorrow may be very difficult and God will use you in his sovereign ways but at the end of the day he will call you home and you'll have nothing in your hands and you will be submitted to God and all will be well and it will all be worth it. That's what this text is calling us to. So, so three questions and then I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna hear the gospel preached and the testimonies of two brothers-in-law that are being baptized this morning. What's your posture towards the future? What is it? Are you presuming upon it? Or are you submitting it to God? Secondly, in what areas are you trusting in yourself and not God? Maybe you're parenting. You may be in this room and you may not yet be a believer and you're trusting, you're trusting in yourself. You know, one day, you're going to stand before the Lord. What will your plea be then? That you occasionally attended Crosspoint? That will get you nowhere in and of itself. Your only plea can be on that day 
that you're not trusting in your own righteousness, your own morality, your only plea on that day can be that you are trusting in what God the Son has done in His perfect life to bear the wrath of God the Father that should have been yours. And Jesus took your wrath on the cross, removed it, extinguished it, satisfied it, died for your sin, and rose again in victory. And now is at the right hand of the Father, commending, praying for you, saying, this one is mine. That is the only hope that any human being has. And is that what your trust is today, friend? If you're not trusting in Christ, none of this matters. None of this matters. This is just a self-help message that will get you nowhere. But if you're trusting in Christ, then, then you can stand before God and you can give your life to him. But I'm speaking now also to Christians. In what little corners of our lives are we still trusting in God? Let's ask ourselves, am I still trusting in God in my parenting, in my pastoring, in my leading a business, or whatever your vocation is? Where are you trusting in God? Where are in yourself rather than God? How are you flying through life in a James 4, 13 sort of way, saying we're going to do this and I'm going to do this and everything's going to be great? Ah, submit it to God, dear friend. And finally, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? Pretty soon, unless Jesus comes back, it's going to be Monday, March 9th. And then it'll be next Sunday, next Sunday. What are you going to do about it? To him who knows the good that he ought to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. If the Holy Spirit is speaking to you right now, if he's chastening you, if he is shining light on the fact that you're living as your own sovereign, what are you going to do about it? You must repent, confess, and run to the foot of the cross and say, God, I've been living like I'm the king. And I confess that to you. Take my life and use it for your glory. Let's pray. Lord, help us. Help us live this text. Help us be wounded by this text and healed by this text and make us more like Jesus because of this text. Help us rest in you and help us work for you because of this text. And now let us revel in the glory of the gospel and salvation and baptism testimonies. And let us worship you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.